The time has just gone 8pm and you're tuned to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. My name is Adrian Fuchs and it gives me great pleasure to present to you tonight the second programme in our special series on Prima Donna Assoluta, Maria Callas. I believe that in the theatre one goes to see and feel something better than what he usually has in life. We have enough of uh, miserable situations and of uh, things to cope with in life. If we go to the theatre... When the public goes out, when he's improved or breathes better and says, well, there's something really worth for, I think that is our main purpose. Now, how we go about that, I don't care, so long as we succeed in that. And music is the straight way to go to the heart and to the minds of people.
Maria Callas there singing Caro Nome from Verdi's Rigoletto in that live performance from the 17th of June 1952 at the Palacio de las Bellas Artes in Mexico City. In last week's program, we took a closer look at Callas's early years, her training in Greece, those magnificent early performances in South America, and her triumphant debut at La Scala on the 7th of December 1951 in Verdi's I Vespri Siciliani. In tonight's program, we continue our journey through Callas's life and artistry with what many regard as the high point of her career, the years 1952 to 1955. For those of you who may have listened last week, you would have noticed that in selecting the audio excerpts used in these programs, I have favoured Callas in live performance as opposed to her studio recordings of the same aria. Though the sound quality in many of these live performances is somewhat sacrificed, my choice is simple. Callas on stage was a different creature to Callas in the recording studio, and her live performances are generally more satisfying musically and artistically. In addition, her studio performances are widely available in numerous CD releases, whereas her live performances are not, and it is my aim to share these historical performances with you as we trace her career. If you have any questions about the recordings played during tonight's program, you're welcome to contact me at adrian at onandofftherecord.com. But for now, on to tonight's program. In addition to Ivespri Siciliani, Callas's first season contract with La Scala included nine performances of Bellini's Norma, and rather surprisingly, four performances as Constanza in Mozart's Die Inführung aus dem Serail, a role that Callas introduced to the La Scala stage on the 2nd of April 1952. After her initial contact with Constanza, however, Callas never again attempted a Mozart role, though she would have been ideally suited to many of them, and it is even rumoured that Rudolf Bing, general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, offered her the role of the Queen of the Night in Mozart's The Magic Flute. During her masterclasses at the Juilliard School of Music in New York in 1971, Callas infamously declared that she found most of Mozart's music dull. But however dull she may have found it, she certainly does not sing it in a dull way. Here is an extract of her whirlwind rendition of Tutte le Turtore, or rather Martin aller Arten, from Mozart's Die Inführung aus dem Serail.
Following her final Norma that season at La Scala, Callas left for the Teatro Comunale in Florence for performances of Rossini's Armida, the first time that the opera had been performed in the 20th century. Callas learned the fiendishly difficult role of the sorceress Armida, her only Rossini opera seria role, in only five days. The opening night performance on the 26th of April 1952 was recorded, and it is from this recording that I'd like to play you the fiendishly difficult set of variations entitled D'Amor al Dolce Impero, Thank you. 
Amor al Dolce Impero, described as one of the most florid and bravura of all Rossini's arias, recorded live there on the 26th of April, 1952, at the Teatro Comenale in Florence. Calas's third and last season in Mexico City commenced on the 29th of May, 1952, with performances of Elvira in Bellini's I Puritani, and it was in Mexico City that the world heard Callas's first Lucia di Lammermoor, as well as her only staged performances of Gilda in Verdi's Rigoletto. Callas's appearances in Mexico City also reunited her with the tenor Giuseppe Di Stefano. In Mexico we did five operas together. Puritani, Lucia, Lucia, her first Lucia, and Traviata, Tosca, my first Tosca, and Rigoletto. She was really a Floria Tosca for this femininity, for this... A presence on the stage, always warm, or uh, really woman in love, like Tosca is, you know, jealous. All this uh, for me was, a, but I discovered her the first time we we start to to sing Puritani, because we sing the same phrase in the last act. The tenor and soprano have the same phrase, and uh, I said, gee, when she start to sing my phrase, she this woman sings like a man, so much passion. On the 8th of November 1952, Callas made her debut at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden in the role of Norma. Here is the impresario Sandor Kurlinski and producer Andy Anderson talking about Callas's debut at Covent Garden. Covent Garden asked me, could I get them Maria Callas to do Norma? And so I was at that time in 1951, I was in St. Moritz on a holiday and Maria Callas was in Verona and so I went four or five times to Verona to discuss it with her. And so I told her all about Covent Garden and the dates and all the rest of it, and she said, well, I told Baptiste a long time ago that I want to go there. Hasn't he settled it yet? I said, no. So he said, what are the dates again? I looked, told her, and she looked at her diary and said, it's perfectly all right, I agree. Well, I had a blank contract you know, in my pocket and so I took it out and said well would you sign it and the fee was 250 pounds a performance and this was the, the famous Norma at Covent Garden in 
in the first act, she has this aria, Casta Diva, which is a showstopper of a piece. You know, it's sing, well, sing, they sing it and recite it in concerts, and it's a beautiful aria, sung very well. It, it's a, it's a, it is a showstopper, as I say. But she has this in the first act. Uh, and I was standing on the LP side of the stage when she came off. Came off, in the first word she said, Andy, what went wrong? And I immediately thought, well, what, is, is something technically, technically gone wrong? I said, nothing, nothing at all. What's the matter? Well, she said, there was no applause after the aria. Oh, I said, don't worry about that. There won't be, you, this is England. She needed a rapport from an audience. If I say, for example, um, you can watch an audience listening to the vocalist, as I call them, and the audience will sit back with their eyes closed and let the sounds go over them. But when the callus is on the stage, the audience just sit like this. And she needed this contact with the audience. And you got contact, and, and to get the contact, she, she gave more than sound. She gave something of herself. Appearing opposite Kalas in those 1952 performances of Norma was a young and as yet unknown soprano named Joan Sutherland, who in many ways became Kalas' successor as the main proponent of the art of bel canto. Here is Sutherland talking about her first impressions of Kalas' voice. Oh, it was a shock. I mean, a, a wonderful shock. You, you just 
it got shivers up and down the spine. It was a bigger sound in in the, those earlier performances than it was once she lost weight. I th I think she tried very hard to recreate the sort of fatness of the sound that she had when she was as fat as she was. But once she lost the weight, she couldn't seem to sustain the great sound that she had made, and the, and the body seemed to to be too frail to support the sound she was making. But it was, oh, it was exciting, it was thrilling. I, I don't think that anyone that heard Callas after 55, 1955, really heard the Callas voice. Stage was she? Oh, she was easy? wonderful. She was marvelous. She was easygoing and 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 a worker. Oh my goodness me! She re rehearsed and rehearsed, always full voice, never pushing the sound. But she was. She would work work until she got what was wanted, and of course had very poor eyesight. She used to pace out how many steps she could go when there were steps and and different levels on the stage, as there were in Norma. She knew how many paces she could take before she had to take a step because she had she was blind as a bat. She had terrible eyesight and of course couldn't wear contact lenses at that stage. She did later. Kalas' second season at La Scala provided her with the opportunity of adding a new Verdi role to her repertoire, that of Lady Macbeth in Verdi's Macbeth. Though she sang Lady Macbeth on stage for only five performances, Kalas' portrayal of this notorious voice wrecker of a role has, according to many, never been surpassed. In this performance, recorded live on the opening night at La Scala on the 7th of December 1952, Callas, brimming with the vocal prodigality and fearlessness of youth, she was only a few days past her 29th birthday, gives a predictably white-hot performance. She rams her brazen chest voice up as far as G and even A-flat above middle C, and flings out a very secure and easy high C in the recitative to her entrance aria, Vieni ta fretta. <laughs> <laughs> 
as William Braw notes, not only are we terrified of the character, we are also terrified to witness a singer who can deliver this passage with such inhuman assurance.
Lady Macbeth's aria Vieni Tafretta, as sung by Maria Callas in that live performance from the 7th of December 1952 at La Scala in Milan, and the orchestra of La Scala there was conducted by Victor de Sabata. Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor was the first opera that Callas recorded for EMI, followed by I Puritani, Cavalleria Rusticana and Tosca, all during 1953. After a year of grueling negotiations to sign Callas, EMI worked its new diva hard, and during her prime years from 1953 to 1960, Callas produced two to four operatic sets per year, recording a total of 23 complete operas for EMI. All her recordings from this period, with the exception of the Cetra Traviata from 1953 and the Recordi Medea from 1957, were made under the supervision of Walter Legg, the renowned artist and repertory director of EMI's Columbia label. Fortunately, Callas's prime years overlapped with a crucial moment in the recording industry, just as it was heading full steam into the era of the long-playing record and growing up in terms of promotion and packaging. Consequently, Callas contributed a great deal to the emergence of the LP as a fully developed artistic medium. According to John Ardoin, it was with Lucia that Callas wrought her greatest revolution in the operatic theatre. She brought new dramatic and tragic elements to the role, while still remaining true to Donizetti's style. After decades, during which the role had been mishandled by light-voiced and self-indulgent sopranos, noted Ardoin, Callas returned an epic sense of its tragic stature by her penetrating psycho- and musico-analysis of the character. In her voice and care, Lucia emerged at once credible and with a previously unsuspected human dimension. Here is the aria Regnava nel silenzio, taken from Callas's famous 1953 recording of Lucia di Lammermoor which John Ardoin referred to as one of the towering operatic experiences of its time.
Nel Silencio from Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor, as sung by Maria Callas in that 1953 recording for EMI. Puccini's Tosca was the fourth recording Callas made for EMI, and according to John Steen, it dates from what was probably the best phase of Callas's career. Her voice and art were then, in 1953, probably at their best point of equilibrium. The art itself was growing almost by the hour, and the voice, its natural beauty matured and mellowed, was still an obedient instrument. Few recordings can claim the legendary status attributed to this performance of Tosca. Almost 60 years after it was first recorded, various re-releases and reissues later, it is still considered the definitive recording of Puccini's opera and one of the greatest recordings ever made. As David Patmore noted, 
To hear this recording is to witness not only a great moment in operatic history, but also a realization of Puccini's score that has never been equaled. According to Ardoin, it is a complete theatrical experience, and in the special world of opera on disc, belongs to the handful of sets that by general consent are considered ideal. Here is an extract from the Act One love duet with Maria Callas as Tosca and Giuseppe Di Stefano as Mario Cavaradossi. Victor de Sabata conducts the orchestra of La Scala Milan. As part of its 1953-54 season, La Scala planned to unearth an eclectic opera by Scarlatti as one of the new productions designed specifically with Callas in mind. But in the spring of 1953, 
the Maggio Musicale in Florence revived Luigi Cherubini's long-forgotten Medea as a star vehicle for Callas, who mastered the role in eight days. So strong was the public response to Callas's Medea that La Scala scrapped its plans for the Scarlatti rarity and substituted the Cherubini work as the second production of the season. The recording of the opening night performance of Medea on the 10th of December 1953 sees Callas in as free and secure a voice as she will be found at any point in her career. The role's many top high notes have a brilliant ring and she handles the treacherous tessitura with ease. So enthusiastic was the La Scala audience after Callas's rendition of the aria De Tuoi Fili La Madre that they gave her a standing ovation reportedly lasting for 10 minutes, a record unheard of in Italy's most prestigious opera house. La Scala was out of its mind, the conductor Leonard Bernstein would later remark. Callas, she was a power station, pure electricity. Of Callas's performance, John Steen later noted, Listening to it now, we can hardly fail to hear retrospectively that the voice, here in prime condition, is given so recklessly to the almost superhuman demands of the role. We cannot help but count the cost. All the more reason, therefore, to value what she gave, which was probably never more heroically unstinting than in this night's work at La Scala. Kala's performances were not only met by extraordinary popular success, but had an enormous influence in the operatic world. She brought back a style of singing and a repertory that had been long neglected. She literally changed the face of opera. It was a recurrent joke among us to divide the history of opera into eras, B.C. and A.C., before and after Callas. She miraculously brought back the two main elements that make opera happen, tragedy and music, the two elements that were also the nest of inspiration of the ancient Greek tragedies. She was Greek after all.
La Madre, as sung by Maria Callas from Cherubini's Medea, and that was recorded live on the 10th of December 1953, and the conductor there of the orchestra of La Scala Milan was Leonard Bernstein. Callas's sudden and dramatic weight loss between 1953 and 1954, when she was 30 years old, has become an integral part of the Callas legend, and many people who can't even name a single opera Callas sang are aware of the fact that she transformed herself from obese prima donna into thin fashion icon. Inspired by Audrey Hepburn in the film Roman Holiday, Callas underwent a dramatic transformation. She did this over a period of 18 months on a stringent diet of salads and raw meat, eating only one meal at midday despite her strenuous schedule and in the process losing approximately 37 kilograms. I think the secret of Maria Callas was her willpower. Maria Callas was born with all sorts of disadvantages. Her voice was not of the most beautiful quality, um, and still she uh, made this instrument the most expressive, the most telling, the most true to the music that she interpreted, of all of the singers of her day. Maria was not born a beautiful woman. Maria was fat, obese, ungraceful. When you realize that this woman, with the, the type of body she started out with in life, which was like that of a pachyderm, turned herself into uh, possibly the most beautiful lady on the stage. Tell me one thing I would have thought would have taken a lot of willpower. Uh, you were, at one stage of your career, a very heavy woman, I understand. Yes. And uh, for most of us mortals, it's very hard to, to cope with even taking off 10 pounds. Well, there is willpower. <laughs> that is willpower. I was going to say, that <sighs> must have taken tremendous willpower. Yes, and also I just uh, had it, as they said. I was bored with the situation. I was not well. What made you decide to... I'll uh, tell you exactly. I uh, was doing Medea then, and at the Maggio Fiorentino for the first time. And I remember that my instinct, which is normally good, my first instinct was saying that the face is too fat and I can't stand it because I needed the chin for expression in certain uh, very hard phrases and uh, cruel oh, phrases. Oh, yeah. Or tense phrases. And I felt, yes. uh, as a woman of theatre that I was and am, that I needed these, the necklines and the chin lines to be very thin and very pronounced. So uh, I was annoyed. I uh, darkened uh, the color of uh, all that, but it's nonsense. You can't do that. Then, after the Maggio Fiorentino, I went to uh, Rome to sing Lucia. 
Singing Lucia was such a hard ordeal for me in the first act. I was getting so heavy that even my vocalizing was heavy. That's interesting. So I was tiring myself. My, I was perspiring too much, and I really was working too hard. So then I said, well, now I've had enough of it. And I wasn't uh -huh. really well as health. I couldn't move uh, freely. And then I was tired of playing again, like, for instance, playing a beautiful young woman. And I was a heavy, uh, uncomfortable woman to move around. Though heavy, one can say, yes, I was, but I'm a tall woman. Yeah. Five, eight and a half, and I used to weigh not more than 200 pounds. It's all right, it's heavy. But for a young woman, it, I'm a tall woman. But in any case, it was uncomfortable, and I didn't like it. And I felt now, if I'm going to do things right... I studied all my life to put things right musically. Why don't I just uh, diet and put myself uh, into a certain condition that I'm presentable? She wanted always to be beloved, to be not only admired as a, as a, as a soprano, but loved, or not loved, uh, admired as a woman. She was always looking for this. This was very important for her, and this is Maria Callas until the end. She knew that she had an extraordinary instrument, instrumento, voice, and, uh, but as a woman, so she, she lost all uh, these pounds and kilos, you know, of... of uh, she, was, she wanted to be, become beautiful, and she wanted to be admired as a woman. The first opera that they did was Traviata here in Bergamo in the festival. I will never forget in the first act when she came in, had the, the impression that comes in a beautiful ice cream, of course, because she was all white and like this. Uh, one and a half year after, I went out from here, from the artist entry, and I saw the most elegant lady, very thin, with a marvelous figure, very, very, very elegant. And I went through, and I hear, Maestro, I turn and I look this lady and she said to me, you don't recognize me. I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry, no. But I am Mira Yocardas. Then in one and a half year, it's not a problem that a person who is very fat becomes thin. She was another woman. Nicola Rechigno, Maria Callas herself, Giuseppe Di Stefano and Carlo Maria Giulini there in various interview clips discussing Callas's dramatic weight loss and transformation. In 1952, the American-born Italian conductor Nicola Rechigno joined forces with Lawrence Kelly and Carol Fox to form the Lyric Theatre of Chicago. With Callas's growing reputation as opera's leading prima donna, the trio of Rechigno, Kelly and Fox knew that Callas, who at that stage had not yet made her Metropolitan Opera debut, was the sort of star that would put their newly formed opera company on the map. For their first season in 1954, they were determined to get Callas. Nicola Rachinho recalls Callas's American debut. Uh, naturally, uh, our first objective was to try to get the reigning queen of opera at the time, Maria Callas. None of us had any personal contact with her, and uh, off we went to Milano. And I remember uh, she was uh, sick. She received us in her bedroom. She had a horrible boil on the back of her neck, which she insisted on showing us. Uh, when the company uh, came to be a reality, she accepted. And uh, we chose, as her debut opera, uh, Norma. Norma. <laughs> 
It was a very, very exciting evening. Even with television as not being as prevalent as it is now, the next day, the whole United States, musically speaking, was talking of this fantastic lady. Uh, we all knew about her, everybody knew about her, because by that time she had already been doing all the opening nights at La Scala, but to have her there in the flesh in the United States was quite an experience, and what a performance it was. She really brought the best out of you, and that was not only out of me, but of all her colleagues. I mean, when you were on the stage with this woman, she could just wipe you out unless you didn't give your very best. I remember De Stefano saying that at the time. There was a sort of love-hatred affair going on there, and he used to say, I enjoy singing with Kalas because you, really she keeps you on your toes. If you don't give 110%, they won't even know you're there, even if the program spells your name out. When we got to the duet Miro Norma, Giulietta Simeonato sang her initial phrases, Miro Norma. Uh, well, it was like Casals playing the cello. I remember looking up, and in my admiration for Simeonato, I happened to see Callas, who instantly realized that that phrase could not be sung better, and she has the same phrase coming up. And I was waiting for her answer, ah, perché, perché? And Maria, rather than really singing it, sort of declaimed it. Afterwards, when the two voices unite in thirds, it gave that whole scene such a new depth and meaning that it was really fantastic.
after the first season, I remember going to Maria and uh, saying naturally that we wanted to continue the seasons and would she be willing to come back the next year? And she said, yes. I said, well, Maria, do you have any criticisms to make? And she said, no, it's fine. She said, you have to strengthen your comprimari. And she said, you know, and I have wonderful colleagues, the best singers in the world. She says, but there's one lady missing. I mentioned this one, the other one. She said, no, 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 she's the greatest one of them all. I said, well, Maria, let's stop playing games. Who is it? She says, Renata Tebaldi. She said, imagine what a coup it would be for you to have me one night and Renata the next night. We did succeed in getting Renata the second year. And you can imagine the audiences. The supposed rivalry between Callas and Renata Tebaldi resurrected an argument as old as opera itself, namely beauty of sound versus the expressive use of sound. Tebaldi, an Italian soprano, who had arrived on the scene a few years before Callas, was renowned for the ravishing beauty of her voice. Tebaldi was said to have the voice of an angel, whereas Callas, as John Ardoin notes, with her demonic and sulfuric sounds, unsettled and disturbed as many as she thrilled and inspired. The supposed rivalry between Callas and Tebaldi, or rather the tensions between the Divas' fanatical fans, reached a fever pitch in the mid-1950s, spurred on by an eager media who frequently over-exaggerated and misquoted both Divas. Tebaldi, for example, was quoted as saying, I have one thing that Callas does not have, a heart while Callas was incorrectly quoted in Time magazine as saying that comparing her with Tebaldi was like comparing champagne with cognac. No, with Coca-Cola. That Callas and Tebaldi were ever considered rivals is somewhat nonsensical, since the two sopranos were very different, not only in terms of their vocal characteristics and timbre, but also in terms of their repertoire. They shared a few roles, including Tosca, Aida, La Forza del Destino and La Gioconda, but essentially, Tibaldi's voice and career was rooted in the early 20th century Italian school of singing, just as firmly as Callas's was rooted in the 19th century bel canto. Callas was a dramatic coloratura soprano, whereas Tibaldi considered herself essentially a lyric soprano, who concentrated on the late Verdi and Verismo roles, roles which do not require a considerable upper extension to the voice or a florid vocal technique. I sing a very vast repertoire. It starts from Norma and it goes to Pagliacci. My rivals, so-called, only sing, may I say, they say a lot of operas, but I really see that they sing certain operas, maybe four or five or six the most, and they keep on singing those operas over and over again. 
Uh, I do not sing four or five operas. I do not take it easy in my work. I work a lot. And not only that, I take enormous responsibilities. Because, you see, when one brings to life a Medea, an Anna Bolena, a Puritani, and so forth, they risk being a flop. They risk losing months of work. Months of money. Because, of course, during the work I do not gain money. It means enormous preparation, humility in working, sacrificing time and uh, spiritual life also. It's worth it. Otherwise, it's no use singing just for the fun of singing. You know, I could sing very well, Bohème, Aida. I don't know, it's the usual work, André Chénier. That's much easier. One can yell their heads off singing them, and one can really sing them musically. Yes. That is a different point. Let's not go into that subject. But, as I say, the day that my so-called rivals will sing the operas I sing, will do the same things I do, on stage will act as I do, will sacrifice themselves as I do, I mean sacrifice, as I said before, working with humility and bringing to life operas and contributing to the art, to the music and to the history of music, up to then I do not consider having any rivals. The alleged rivalry aside, Callas was in fact highly appreciative of Tibaldi. Why do you think it is that you go to her performances to see her sing and she refuses to come to yours? I wish you'd ask her that. I admire Renata Tibaldi's tone. It's beautiful. Also some beautiful phrasing. Sometimes I must say that I wish I had her voice. Now, you said Tibaldi challenging me. How can she challenge me? Can she sing the operas I sing? No. My repertoire is very vast. Lots of operas and very different operas. Renata Tibaldi, too, expressed her admiration for Callas. This rivalry was really building uh, from uh, the, the people of the newspaper and the fans. But I think that was very good for, for both of us because the publicity was so big and, uh, and they created a very, a very big interest about uh, me and, uh, and, and Maria. And it was very good in the end. But um, I don't know why they put this kind of a rivality because the voice was very different. She was really something and unusually. And uh, I, I remember that I, I was very young artist too. And uh, I, I stayed near to the radio every time that uh, I know that uh, was something in the radio uh, by Maria. Because the, the most uh, um, fantastic thing was when the, the possibility for her to sing the soprano coloratura with this big voice. And this was really, was, it was really something very special. Fantastic, absolutely. When Maria Callas appeared for rehearsals at La Scala in November 1954, following her American debut at the Chicago Lyric Theatre in Norma, she was a woman totally transformed. The new Callas had the figure of a ballerina, and her dark hair had been dyed blonde to impart a softer appearance on stage. So dramatic was her change in appearance that many of her colleagues did not recognize her. With five operas scheduled for the 1954-55 La Scala season, four of them in new productions, the season would be one of Callas's busiest and most varied. More importantly, it would also mark her first collaborations with two major figures from the world of theatre and film, 
Lucchino Visconti and Franco Ziffarelli. Under their direction, Callas would further refine her natural gifts as an actress. Visconti especially could achieve anything with Callas dramatically, and along with the musical support of conductor Leonard Bernstein, the opening night of Bellini's La Sonnambula at La Scala on the 5th of March 1955 ranks as one of Callas's most memorable achievements in the theatre. Here is Come per me sereno from Bellini's La Sonnambula, recorded on the opening night of that legendary 1955 production.
Come per me sereno from Bellini's La Sonnambula, there in that live performance from La Scala, recorded on the 5th of March, 1955. Maria Callas, of course, singing, and Leonard Bernstein conducting the orchestra in that live performance. Our next extract that I would like to play to you is a legendary opening night performance of La Traviata from La Scala, recorded on the 28th of May, 1955. Of this performance, John Steen later noted, As with the Berlin performance of Lucia de Lammermoor later that year, Callas was never to sing better, and the artistic genius was never to find a more unimpeded way to its fulfillment. When listening to this extract, I am reminded of something which producer Andy Anderson once said. He was of the opinion that most sopranos can make you cry in the last act of Traviata, but Callas made you cry in the second.
se vero scritto vi lasciava, però l'attendo, tamerà in vedere. E qui non mi sorprenda, lascia che m'allontani. Callas and Giuseppe Di Stefano there in an extract from Act 2 of Verdi's La Traviata, recorded on the 28th of May 1955 at La Scala in Milan, with Carlo Maria Giulini conducting the orchestra of La Scala. In September 1955, Callas, along with tenor Giuseppe Di Stefano and conductor Herbert von Karajan, toured with the La Scala company to the Städtische Oper in Berlin for a revival of the previous year's La Scala production of Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor. There, on the 29th of September 1955, Callas gave the most vivid and searching of her many portrayals of Lucia preserved on disc, demonstrating how interpretation of the role was cast unashamedly in the Lerico Spinto style, with immaculately sculpted phrasing and word-pointing and a vibrantly expressive use of ornamentation. Though still executing the coloratura with unerring accuracy, Callas uses a stunning weight of tone and breadth of phrasing, as well as a flawless, richly drawn legato sound. In reviewing this performance, Desmond Shaw Taylor in Opera Magazine wrote, I dare say she will never sing any better than she does now. And then as John Steen would later write, Shaw Taylor wrote even more truly than he could have known, for it was not long before Callas's vocal decline became inescapably apparent, and not so very long before the brilliant career was virtually over. We are fortunate to have this recording of its high point. There are not many nights in an opera-goer's lifetime when all the elements come together to make a great occasion, as they do here. If I could own but a single Callas recording, John Ardoin once stated, it would be this one. Oh, 
As part of her second season in Chicago in November 1955, Kalla sang three performances, her only stage performances of Puccini's Madama Butterfly. Nicola Rashino was the conductor of these performances. We had the three performances scheduled, but the demand for tickets was such that we persuaded Maria to do a fourth performance. And I remember it was sold out like in half an hour, just lines around the building at Wacker Drive there in Chicago. Maria had a uh, contract from her young days with a certain Mr. Bagarozzi. He was after her for money, and uh, I think the theater uh, had assured her that we would try to protect her from uh, this type of invasion. I went to the theater that night. Kelly and Fox came to my dressing room and told me that Maria was going to be served with papers. I felt a loyalty to Maria. I knew what this meant to her, and I had the tremendous dilemma whether to tell her, and I don't know if I was wise or not, but I did not tell her. Maria was very happy because it had gone very well and the audience was delirious and it was her last night and she was going on to her next big engagement. After the curtain calls, we were going to our dressing rooms. This gentleman presented Maria. She thought he was, you know, she was half blind anyway. She thought he was somebody who wanted her autograph or something instead of it turned out to be the process server. And then uh, there was a photographer there who snapped that famous picture that dubbed Maria the Tigress of Opera. That uh, started the big rift between Maria and the Chicago people. As a matter of fact, she never appeared in Chicago again. Three months prior to the incident in Chicago, Kalas had recorded Madama Butterfly for EMI under the baton of Herbert von Karajan. Kalas gives you the cry of pain, Germaine Greer once stated, and what is amazing about it is her control. She never loses it. She builds up the tension until the wire is so tight and plangent, but there is no relief, and the sound becomes more and more desolate.
Butterfly's death scene, Tutu Piccolo e Dio, from Puccini's Madame Butterfly, in that recording from 1955, with Herbert von Karajan conducting. For the gala opening of the 1955-56 La Scala season, Kala sang the 60th of her 92 normas. At the time, she was at the pinnacle of her artistic creativeness, maturity and persuasiveness, and was in stupendous vocal form, giving what was arguably her finest recorded portrayal of Bellini's heroine. The most thrilling and sublime moment in this opening night performance is when Norma confesses her guilt before the summoned druid crowd with the simple declaration, It is I. While Kala sang an extraordinarily long, soft and finely spun sonillo, she slowly took off the crown-like laurel wreath from her head and let it fall to the ground, conveying Norma's feelings of unworthiness with supreme dignity. As Milan Petkovic notes, vocal expression and acting are in perfect symbiosis here, reflecting Norma's hesitance and shame, but also a sudden sense of relief. These stunningly effective achievements on three different levels, vocal, dramatic and acting, are all fused together in a single artistic statement, generating a moment unique in the history of operatic performance. The effect was so striking in its emotional power that the audience collectively gasped in admiration and awe. Before I play out tonight's program, with extract from the final act of Bellini's Norma, just a reminder that you can download a podcast of tonight's program, as well as some of my previous Fine Music Radio programs, from my website On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. And so, without further ado, here is Maria Callas as Norma, Mario Del Monaco as Polione, and Nicola Zaccaria as Oriveso. Antonino Votto conducts the orchestra and chorus of La Scala Milan in this splendid live recording from La Scala, recorded on the 7th of December, 1955. From me, Adrian Fuchs, I wish you a wonderful weekend, and I hope that you will join me again next Friday, the 21st of September at 8pm, here on Fine Music Radio, for the next installment in our series on Maria Callas. Good night. Yeah. <laughs>